Hello, and this is the Guidehouse Transportation Insights podcast for uh, January 12th, 2022. We are back from our holiday break, and uh, I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad, Principal Analyst with Guidehouse Insights, and I'm joined by my colleagues Ryan Citron, Christian Albertson, Saji Evbenata, and Joe Janetta. Uh, and why don't we start off this week's conversation with uh, Christian. Christian, what do you got in the aviation space? Yeah, we got a kind of an exciting one today. Um, so back in 2019, uh, Aviation uh, introduced their Alice aircraft, electric aircraft, at um, the Paris Air Show. And it just was announced uh, on the 10th, so two days ago, that they are getting ready for this aircraft to make its very first flight. So the uh, full electric aircraft will finally take off here in the next few days. The uh, CEO, kind of funny, said we're five or six good uh, testing days away from the actual first flight. So it'll be soonish. Um, so we're expecting the flight sometime uh, probably by the end of the month. Um, the Aviation Alice is a very interesting aircraft. When it was originally introduced, it was a, uh, it was a tail dragger. You had two, uh, the two main gear in the front and one in the back. So you were tail dragger, kind of like the old um, World War II aircraft that people see as an example. Uh, they've changed that. It's now a, a basically a tricycle gear. So you have two in the back, one in the front, uh, which makes the aircraft the fuselage level when it's parked. Um, that was one of the issues that, that a lot of people looked at and, and questioned originally, because why would you make a tail dragger out of a, out of a modern aircraft? Um, so it's a twin engine, of fully electric aircraft, uh, max speed of about 250 knots, max range about 440 nautical miles. Um, the only, only bad part I see, and this is the exact same with the other uh, electric aircraft that's out there is your max payload, whether it be humans, cargo, whatever is 2,500 pounds. So you're limited to about eight to nine passengers and their luggage. So, and, and then as soon as you start throwing luggage and stuff on there, your passenger count goes down because the, of the weight of the aircraft. And that's one of the biggest downfalls of these aircraft is, is the weight when you start putting on the cargo. Um, sure, it's still kind of a short uh, range to it as of yet, but again, this is just the first one. Um, DHL has ordered these. They're going to be flying these in the future with, you know, just as pure cargo planes, smaller airports, things like that. So it's really interesting, but it's really good to see this. Well, it's going to be awesome to see this thing take flight here in the next few days. Just hey, Christian, what, what, uh, what is the range on that aircraft, if I missed that? Uh, this one's 440 nautical miles, which is amazing for for a nine passenger the other nine passenger that's out there is the um e-caravan and that is a cessna caravan that's been converted over to electric and it it has about a hundred mile range uh so this one is is a big twin engine it's pure electric it's not a converted aircraft it's purposely built as electric so that helps quite a bit um Maximum takeoff weight, 16,500 pounds. So it's a good size airplane as well. Mm -hmm. um, How does that range compare to uh, internal combustion engines? 
Uh, very short. It's about it's less than half of what an internal combustion would have. Yeah, for the same size. So it's, a, it's an interesting looking, design. Yeah, it's yeah, kind, it's, kind of reminiscent of the uh, Piaggio Avanti. Yes, very, very much, and it's um, it's not the standard just circular tube for your fuselage. It is. They've gone through a lot of aerodynamic studies for this. If you look at the fuselage, it actually, when you look at it from the side, it almost looks like, uh, for lack of a better term, a bullet. It's very, very, um, you know, pointy in the front, and then it goes back down in the back, and it's a very long aircraft. So they've uh, a lot of the aerodynamics on this is helping with that range as well. Uh, the e, um, the e caravan is a straight uh, has a straight wing on it as well, which again limits your your air speeds, your range, and stuff like that. This one is built for faster flight, and so that's going to give you a little bit better aerodynamics with it as well. Christian, do, do such um, aircraft have? Um greater restrictions on um, payload it's it, it's not a restriction on payload it's it's the the fact that when an aircraft takes off if you, if you have a the maximum takeoff weight on this one is 16.5 so you have to figure in okay how much do your passengers weigh how much is the cargo going to weigh and then your batteries now with with an aircraft when you're flying batteries your battery weight never changes over the, the, the flight of the aircraft. Mm. You know, it's it's not like fuel where when you burn fuel, it, your plane gets lighter. So aircraft are built to withstand a certain amount of weight when they land. So they have to look at it that way too. So they know this is going to be a heavier aircraft when it lands versus the e-caravan as it lose or, it, or the, the standard caravan when it flies in, in uh, using... Uh, low lead 100 ll it's going to fly with or avgas it's going to fly and lose weight so when it lands it's going to weigh less than when it took off uh. so that has to be factored in there as well because those kind of limitations look at are are in there when you come to your flight and your flight envelope and what the aircraft can and cannot do sure is, is there a significant difference um in the takeoff weights of of, of, of that and, and an equivalent um ice aircraft no no, no, they're about the same. The, the difference is, you know, the, the ICE aircraft is going to lose that weight and the fuel. The fuel is going to be in the wings. It's going to be, you know, un, uh, underneath the fuselage on some of them. They have the tanks underneath. But your fuel is mostly in your wings. On this one, it, because of the center of gravity type stuff, your batteries are going to be mostly in the fuselage. But takeoff weights are about going to be about the same, um, especially for an aircraft this size. And then your landing is going to be heavier than you would with a normal aircraft though. Yeah. And wh when did you say uh, this was going to fly and when do they anticipate potentially being in service? But the, the official uh, when it's going to fly is soon ish. That's from their CEO. <laughs> uh, it's it, next few, uh, he said five to six good testing uh, weather testing days. So they still have some ground run-ups and, and everything they, they're still going to do, but they're ready to go. Um, you're still looking at 2025 or later. Um, some, Let's see here. The, there's some of them that are looking at uh, 
20, yeah, 2025 or later. Uh, let's see. I think DHL is looking at that time frame as well to go in as pure cargo in the 2025 range. So you still have at least two years of testing on this before it's certified that it, it, it can take uh, passengers. So it's nine passengers and two crew for this? Yes. Okay. Cool. I mean, it's a, it's a neat looking aircraft. I, you know, I'd love to see one of these things in action one of these days. Well, give it a few years and, the, and theoretically they're going to be everywhere, but we'll see what <laughs> happens. See. Uh, you know, it's, um, I'd love to get up there to see this one's flight. I'm going to see if I can find a, a place. Um, a lot of times they will, will stream the first flights. So I'm going to see if they're going to do that. And if they do that, I'll let you guys know. Excellent. All right. Any other questions for Christian? Yeah, I got one more actually. Um, hey, Christian, since we, we were talking about the range is so much less for, for these electric planes compared to their gas equivalents. And, you know, it sounds like a nine passenger uh, flight, you know, go pretty short distances. Um, is there been any discussion around battery swapping as a way to, to deal with that issue for, for these flights if they're doing short little, you know, one hour, two hour flights and just have them swap out the batteries versus versus charging? And, and that might sort of close the gap a little bit as far as their flexibility to, to fly. Is that, is that something that's being tested or talked about or obviously on the, on the car side that, that is so curious if, if that's happening at all? Yeah, on the car side, it's a little different because, you know, what's the weight of your battery? On the aviation side, you're looking at 2,000 pounds worth of mm -hmm. batteries just for the, um, you know, the swap out. And they're, they are usually in um, bigger modules instead mm -hmm. of the, you know, 45, 50 pound chunks for a car battery or, or, or anything like that. You're going to swap out. You're talking about a 200 to 300 pound battery. So you'd have to have some special equipment to do it. Um, the uh, the Joby aircraft, electric aircraft, for instance, it's actually building the batteries into the fuselage of the aircraft. So the answer is no, you cannot swap those, period. Um, mm. So it, it's probably going to differ by design, but very few have even mentioned the battery swapping on yeah. yeah, since yeah. since since weight is such a critical factor for aviation, <clears throat> much more so than for ground ground vehicles, um, you know, you probably want to integrate the batteries as much as possible into the structure. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if for swappable batteries, you've, you're going to have some space, some volume that's taken up by the the structure to hold the battery and and in the fuselage uh, to contain all that. So you're going to give up, you're going to end up giving up some range uh, for that, you know, within, within whatever your maximum takeoff and landing yeah. weights are. Yeah, exactly. So it, yeah, it's a good point. You know, like I said, it's, it's, it's great to see it here. They're, they're using the uh, Magni X uh, engines, which are, is interesting. Those are the same, uh, same people that built the uh, engines for the e-caravan. Um, but they're using fast chargers, things like that, but you're still, you're not going to have a fast turnaround on any of these electric aircraft yet. What one other question for you, Christian? Do you know what what type of electrical architecture are they using in these uh, electric aircraft? Are you know is it a four hundred volt architecture, eight hundred, nine hundred? Um, I'm not sure on this one. Let me see if I can check real quick. Um, the 
move. That would be interesting to find out because, you know, obviously for depending on the application, you know, you're going to want to do some fairly fast charging if you want quick turnaround times, you know, especially for a commercial aircraft. Yeah. Um, and uh, so a higher voltage architecture, um, you know, would help that would enable faster charging rates um, yeah. and also um, reduced weight because the, the cabling for high voltage, the higher your voltage, the less, the smaller your cabling can be. Yeah. So you have a, the, the, the power plants on these are 640 kilowatt engines or motors. So you'd, um, I'd have to check into the full architecture, see if I can, I'll, I'll see if I can find some info on that. That's yeah. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Yeah. Let me see what I can find. All right. Cool. All right. Uh, Saji. What have you got? Hey, so, um, yeah, I thought I'd like to talk about um, some recent developments in um, autonomous trucking. Um, so at the end of last year, um, uh, an, an autonomous uh, trucking, HD trucking company, a startup called Too Simple, they um, demonstrated um, a complete driverless um, um, route um, in Arizona. Uh, starting in Arizona end of, end of last year without having any humans present within the vehicle and with no other human uh, interventions. Um, so this, I think it was a, about an 80 miles trip um, starting in uh, Tuscon in Arizona, um, um, arriving in uh, in Phoenix. In Phoenix. Um, so on, on route, uh, the, the, the vehicle was, was able to demonstrate, it was able to, um, to, to follow traffic signals, um, use highway ramps, um, avoid um, emergency vehicles, um, and, and so on, and, and, and essentially be able to, to complete the journey on, on normal public roads. Um, there was no, there was not even any remote operators um, to, to intervene, available to intervene, um, but there were some um, escorting vehicles some distance back from the vehicle, just in case um, uh, something untoward occurred. Um, but the company is claiming that this is the first Class 8 autonomous uh, semi-truck um, demonstration on public roads. Um, and um, I think the overall journey time is probably an hour and a half traveling you know, you know, at night. Um, so it, it seemed a reasonably challenging um, uh, exercise. So so this is a milestone for the company and it is part of their, their wider um um, automated HD trucking um, program, uh, which that which they're calling Driver Out. Um, the the company also claims that they they've done s something like uh, two million miles of testing so far, um, with with a, a, a high number of uh, of prototypes. Um, so this, I guess, this is the, the product which is part of um, you know their, their bigger business model that they're trying to develop. Um, They've developed something which they call the um, uh, uh, autonomous freight network, um, which is essentially um, uh, a nationwide um, automated trucking uh, route, um, and it also incorporates um, a fleet management platform uh, for, for, for central uh, management of the entire uh, automated fleet. Um, one of the, one of the key, I, th I think, um, innovations with the company as well on the, on the business side is um, that they're really trying to promote their trucking on demand um, approach, um, where 
other operators could potentially purchase the um, automated vehicles from Too Simple, um, but then they pay uh, perhaps on the per mile or, or maybe something related to, to, to cargo volume or weight um, to operate on their on their network. Uh, the, the, the main benefits of, of these trucks, which have been developed, um, are primarily costs related. I think um, so. The uh, Too Simple claim that um, they can. That, um, an operator can save something like forty percent of the of the cost of the overall cost um, simply by removing the driver and using their um, uh, automated uh, trucks. Um, also, there is a, an that also in incorporates um, a benefit of improved fuel economy, um, seeing that the um, uh, the, the trucks um, are uh, are not so emotional and 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 a lot more. Um, um, efficiency orientated in terms of driving. Um, furthermore, um, you know, without the driver, of course, these tr these these trucks which travel over vast distances are, are capable of driving pretty much continuously uh, within the range of the vehicle, of course. And um, I think in previous demonstrations, they've 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 managed to shave off something like ten hours off a twenty-four hour uh, trip, um, simply because there's no need for 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 driver brakes or, or stops. Um, finally, I think safety is the other key benefit here. Um, um, too simple claim that, um, that the improved safety of the, of, of the, um, the AI driving the vehicles um, enables, um, I think, firstly, quicker identification of, of potential hazards, apparently 15 times faster than humans. Um, and they adhere to the, the road regulations better than, than humans do. So, um, so this is an opportunity that they've identified for commercializing um, automated uh, trucking, and um, and it also addresses, I guess, one of one of the, the recent issues of, of a shortage of, of, of truck drivers uh, in the, in the country. So, um, so, so yeah, I think I thought it was an interesting demonstration and and a landmark for the for the company. So the uh, the test run that they did um, that was a full. Uh, depot to depot run without a safety driver on board. Yeah, so I'm not sure entirely if it was starting from a depot. I, I think they started actually at some um, something like a, a rail yard, I believe, but it, it was going okay. to a, um, a distribution hub. So uh, from one, so one facility to another. Yeah, so it was about an, it was about an 80 miles uh, trip overall. Yeah, Two Simple is definitely one of the the leaders in this space. You know, they they've got a fairly sizable fleet uh, i think the last time i checked it was about 50 trucks that they're running they've been running commercial operations with safety drivers for a couple of years now with quite a few different customers including uh ups the postal service mm -hmm. and uh and a number of others as well um across the, the southwest across between primarily between arizona new mexico and texas um is most of the routes that they've been doing yeah yeah, that's right. And uh, I, I, I understand that they do have in, an international presence, although I'm not aware of any specific trials they've done uh, overseas. But, um, yeah, they, 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 they do operate nationwide and internationally. All right. Hey, Saji, um, when you think about autonomous trucking, do you think there's ever going to be a need in the future uh, for these corridors um, to have maybe like a separate lane for these kind of vehicles, I, I mean, if you talk to the average person, if you're on the highway and you see a, a semi truck with no driver beside you, that'd probably make most people pretty uncomfortable. 
Is, do you uh, imagine any sort of uh, separated lane for self-driving, especially trucks, um, at some point, just to kind of as a safety measure? Yeah, I, I see that, yeah, potentially. Um, maybe not necessarily on, on an entire national uh, highway network, but it's, it's, mm. I would see that there is potential to have certain routes which there's protected lanes for um, automated uh, trucks, whether um, individual trucks like, like uh, the ones demonstrated or perhaps to enable platooning on, on highways. Um, but I guess not all not all highways and not all countries have you know, su- such a good uh, network that they can free up a whole lane for, for um, automated uh, trucking traffic. Yeah, probably, probably not um, a physically separate lane, but maybe something akin to an HOV lane where, you know, automated trucks, you know, can operate in, you know, in the right-hand most lane, for example, or maybe in the left-hand lane, yeah. um, you know, and that would, you know, maybe at certain times of the day, uh, you know, so it could be limited to certain times of the day or certain areas, you know, all, it depend, depending on how many vehicles there are, how much traffic there is, you restrict those vehicles to the, to those lanes. Yeah. And, I guess one thing I was interesting about the demo was um, they did it overnight. It, it appears so. Um, you know, perhaps that could be you know, the optimum time for you know, cross-country uh, logistics trips with, with, with such uh, with such vehicles. Yeah, well, I mean, for for long haul package delivery and that sort of thing, a lot of those trips are run at night anyway. Mm. Um, you know, they, they they do a lot of those trips overnight when there's less other traffic um, and. You know, if you look more broadly at the AV industry, you know, a lot of particularly testing that's done drive without a safety operator, a lot of that is done at night when there's less traffic around anyway. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question for you, Saji. The um, I'm not sure how it is over there in the UK, but here in the States we have um, a lot of roads with weight limitations, stuff like that. And you also have your... Um, inspection stations that a lot of these trucks have, you know, every truck has to pull into how, how would an electric unmanned vehicle deal with one of those inspection stations? I mean, if it pulls in and it's overweight, what happens? You don't have anybody to, to give a ticket to, you don't have anybody to, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things there. I'd like to see, figure out how they, or figure out how they would uh, work those kind of situations out. Yeah, that's a good good, good point. Um, I, I would imagine because they 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 you know they, they probably operate on their um, you know, their, their own HD mapping uh, uh, system. So I would, I would imagine one of the key inputs there would have been um, you know where these weights. Uh, what, what do you call them? Weight, weight bridges, or um, I'm not sure what you call them. Weight stations. Yeah, weight stations. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps yeah. That, those are identified on the map, and and, and therefore where required that the, the, the truck could pull in. Um, I, I think in terms of ticketing um, overweight vehicles, then I, I, I presume that that, that ticket, the, the ticket will probably go to the, to the operator and um, the, the, the vehicle is, pr- is probably um, impounded until they can uh, unload it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think Saji's on the right track there. I mean, you know, we already do automated ticketing for, uh, you know, speed cameras, red light cameras, that sort of thing. So, you know, for an automated truck, they would just issue the ticket to whoever the fleet operator is. Um, and, you know, these trucks are all going to be using high definition maps uh, anyway. 
And so they'll know where the way stations are and they'll be programmed to automatically enter the way stations, uh, you know, if, if they're required to do it on every trip. Um, you know, if it's random sampling, you know, probably what we'll end up doing is some sort of vehicle to infrastructure communications. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if a, if a vehicle has been tagged to come in for uh, a weighing, you know, it'll, it'll send a signal to that truck and, you know, then it'll come into the next weigh station and get weighed. Have they said at all um, what sensors they're focusing more heavily on? I know there's debate around camera and uh, LIDAR and radar, too. Um, have they weighed one more heavily um, in their setup? Um, no, I, I, I think it's it's a, a wide approach, you know, using LIDAR as well as cameras um, and radar, of course. Um, I think um, they did mention that... Um, I think it's from the, from the camera, the, the cameras themselves, HD cameras that they've got installed, um, it allows um, identification of, of hazards something like one kilometer away. Um, so um, yeah, they, they they lean on the full the full range of potential sensors. Yeah, they they do use cameras, radar, and lidar. Um, and Too Simple has worked for several years with uh, Nikon on the optics for the cameras uh, and image stabilization. Uh, to allow that thousand meter detection, um, and they they have worked with uh, a few different lidar companies, uh, including they, at times they have used Validine's lidar, but uh, more recently they've been using lidar from uh, Eva and uh, AI, uh, a couple of different uh, long range lidar providers. So they're uh, they're they're doing um, a variety of different things as they continue to refine their system. All right, Ryan, your turn. Yeah, so last week, uh, Rivian filed to filed a new trademark for electric bicycles. Uh, so Rivian is obviously really known as, uh, you know, for their electric pickup trucks and SUVs. And I thought it was pretty interesting that they filed to, to expand the use of their Rivian trademark to, to a new category focused on electric bicycles. Uh, there isn't that much information available yet beyond that, but I did think it would be Interesting to kind of speculate and, and on what types of e-bikes they might be developing and then kind of comment on the development broadly. Uh, in terms of the type of e-bikes that, that Rivian is likely to launch, I think it would make a lot of sense to, to have an electric mountain bike come as an option alongside the R1T electric pickup truck, especially and as well as the R1S uh, SUV, since both, both of those vehicles are being marketed pretty strongly as uh, for their off-road applications and, and towing capabilities. So it would certainly uh, make a lot of sense to, to have an electric mountain bike come as an option along those vehicles. And, and the company is already offering a lot of different types of uh, pretty expensive options along with their vehicles that relate to camping and, and things like that. Uh, I could also imagine a city commuter option being there just to, to give consumers you know, a couple of choices. Uh, and this certainly wouldn't be the first time that, that an automaker would pair electric bicycles with uh, or other light EVs uh, as options with their full-sized electric vehicles. So, for example, uh, Porsche launched two new electric bikes alongside its Taycan Cross Turismo. And Tesla uh, has marketed its Cyberquad electric ATV that, that will apparently be an option for the Cybertruck. So, so not kind of a new thing to, to package uh, a smaller electric vehicle that will go with uh, the larger full-size one. And overall, I think it's a, it's a smart move for Rivian. I mean, e-bike sales have just skyrocketed in, in the U.S. since COVID-19 hit. 
there's over 20 million bicycles sold per year in the U.S. and less than 1 million are electric currently. So you're talking about less than 5% market share for e-bikes. Uh, so there's still a really long way to go. If you look at countries like Germany and, and the Netherlands and Austria, e-bikes make up over 40% of bicycle sales. So there, there's a lot of room for growth uh, in the U.S. still on, on the e-bike side. And Rivian really should be able to, to sell their e-bikes at a premium um, for that added convenience uh, of getting the e-bike alongside your EV, which presumably would kind of custom fit uh, to come with the vehicle. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if, if any other automakers follow suit. You know, Ford, for example, could also pair an electric mountain bike with uh, the F-150 Lightning. Um, Ford had previously developed an e-bike called the Ford Super Cruiser, uh, which was developed and sold in partnership with Pedego, who's one of the major um, U.S. manufacturers of e-bikes. So it'd be kind of interesting to see uh, when the products come out and if this becomes more of a a widespread trend as, as we see more electric uh, SUVs and, and trucks come, come to market. Yeah, I think uh, that is a good pairing for Rivian uh, to get an extra revenue stream in there uh, mm-hmm. to, to build up, you know, on what they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the, one of the chief competitors for Rivian going forward is going to be Jeep as they start launching battery electric versions of, of all of their models, but in between now and 2025. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a Jeep e-bike appear at some point. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if it was Jeep or a different company. There was uh, a company that launched um, a Super Bowl ad a couple years ago for an e-bike. And actually I think it was Jeep. I just did a quick Google that Jeep does have an e-bike and it's a oh, yeah. big hunky electric mountain bike. It looks pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, you're spot on with that. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that they will probably, uh, package that with offer a package of that along with the, uh, when they launch uh, electric Jeeps in the next couple of years and maybe, maybe even before that, they, they're already selling the electric or a plug-in hybrid version of the Wrangler. Um, Hmm. so this would be an interesting add on to that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Anything else from uh, from your end, uh, Ryan? Um, no, I think that's about it. I mean, the only other thing I saw on uh, mine that I thought might be worth discussing for the group is uh, I did see a development out of France that, that was pretty interesting. And essentially, um, car commercials are starting to be regulated similar to cigarette ads. It's, you know, he's driving the new smoking is kind of the, the headline. And so starting in March of, of this year, all French uh, car ads will be required to include a message promoting alternative modes of transport, such as biking, uh, walking, carpool, uh, micromobility, public transit. Uh, so curious if, if anyone from the group has, has thoughts on that. That's obviously a pretty new kind of way of thinking about cars and, and not something that we've really seen yet. So curious if anyone has thoughts on that. Yeah, I saw I saw a news item about that. Uh, I think that's actually a probably a pretty smart idea, um, you know, to to try to encourage people to use other transportation modes besides their car, um, especially in places uh, you know like big cities like Paris, where you do have viable public transit and, and other modes as well as micro mobility that you can use to get around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paris is one of the 
cities that could certainly get away with pushing other options. They're, they're you know, one of the world capitals for micromobility, certainly in Europe, and yeah, I'm sure, very good transit system and, and, and everything like that. Um, just it's so interesting to see that become mandated, similar to, you know, a cigarette package warning you about health effects. Now, you know, car companies have to warn about, you know, basically their, their health effects and then trying to push people into other healthier modes of transportation. I'm just wondering what the Surgeon General warning would look like on the side of your truck. <laughs> it's an exhaust pipe going down, you know, a little kid's throat or something. Yeah, yeah. Something. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure um, what, this, what the cigarette adverts are like in the US, but um, obviously here there's no advertising or even the packaging is, is nondescript. And, uh, but they do have like pre- it's, it's more of the, the shock factor to, to put you off. So they've got medical images of – yeah, yeah. yeah I've seen some of those pretty uh, pictures of yeah. black lungs. Yeah. yeah. So at least in the UK, you need quite a strong deterrent to kind of change behaviors. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting. All right. Well, then I will uh, wrap it up uh, for this week with some of the news out of CES last week. Um, as a, record, as a recording, uh, the 2022 edition of CES took place in Las Vegas last week and some people showed up, um, only uh, about about a quarter of the normal number, apparently. Um, but uh, I opted not to go in person this year, but did uh, do a lot of meetings with a lot of different companies in the transportation sector. And um, there was a, a couple of uh, big themes uh, that I saw. Um, you know, there, we obviously had uh, big announcements from GM and Chrysler with their new EVs, the Chevy Silverado EV and the Chrysler Airflow concept, which is a preview of, of a new electric crossover they're going to be launching in a few years. Um, but I think the, the bigger things of, of interest uh, that I saw were around LiDAR and chips for upcoming vehicles. Uh, on the chip side, um, NVIDIA uh, didn't announce anything new, but they did uh, um, have... Uh, uh, an online press conference that focused more on their simulation technologies uh, when it comes to automated driving. Uh, but Mobileye, um, who are currently the market leader in driver assist systems, announced uh, two next generation tri- chips that they have coming, the IQ6 and the IQ Ultra. Uh, the IQ6 is their mainstream ADAS uh, processor chip uh, family uh, that's going to be replacing the current IQ4 that is used in uh, I think somewhere on the order of about, somewhere between 15 and 20 million vehicles now uh, globally. And um, the IQ6 replaces that. Um, it's going to have, it's going to be 45% smaller than the IQ4, um, have uh, four and a half times the processing capability, uh, lower power consumption. Uh, and um, it'll, it'll enable a lot of uh, new capabilities for driver assist systems. And then the IQ Ultra is uh, their competitor for the high-end chips for automated driving, such as um, the uh, NVIDIA Orin and their next-gen chip, the Atlan. Uh, the, the IQ6 is launching next year, 2023. The Ultra will be uh, going into production programs starting about 2025. And it features uh, 176 trillion operations per second, um, the, the robo taxis that mobilize launching this year in, uh, in Tel Aviv and in Munich, uh, use the compute platform with 
five or eight of their current generation IQ five high uh, SOCs. Um, the single IQ ultra chip will outperform that combination of eight IQ fives. Uh, it's got 12 risk five cores, um, uh, a couple of, uh, H264, 265 encoders, um, less than hundred Watts of power consumption, which is really important in electric vehicles. Um, and they're going to start sampling, um, the end of uh, next year and shipping production parts in 2025. And, they um, talking with uh, Amnon Shashua, the CEO of Mobileye last week. Um, he projected the overall system cost for the electronics uh, in an automated vehicle with the Ultra to be less than $1,000, which is uh, a pretty significant improvement from where they would be with a, a computer that re relied on eight IQ5 chips. So um, they're uh, mobilized, continuing to play aggressively in this market space. Uh, they're, you know, they are losing some market share, even though uh, driver assist systems are a growing market. They're losing market share to NVIDIA as well as to Qualcomm. Uh, and they definitely want to stay competitive as much as they can. Uh, speaking of Qualcomm, um, you know, they are best known for producing chips for uh, mobile devices for um, phones, tablets, and, and all kinds of other things, as well as uh, cellular modem chips. Um, and a few years ago, they started uh, shipping uh, chips that are used to drive infotainment systems in cars. Um, and now, uh, two years ago at CES, they announced the Snapdragon Ride platform, which is designed for driver assist and automated driving systems. And the first production programs with that are launching this year. Uh, starting with the Cadillac Lyric that goes on sale this spring, Cadillac's first EV. Uh, it's using uh, the, I, the Snapdragon Ride ADAS processor for to power the Super Cruise system that's going to be in there. And then next year, um, the uh, when GM launches their Ultra Cruise system uh, that will be capable of hand, supposedly handling uh, hands-free driving in 95% of driving scenarios, it'll also be running on Qualcomm Silicon uh, using... Uh, three Qualcomm chips, uh, two of their um, ADAS processors plus one of their AI accelerators. Um, and uh, that's going to be launching um, the launching in a, uh, a several GM vehicles in 2023. Uh, and there are a number of other OEMs that are also um, working with Qualcomm that haven't been announced yet. Um, and uh, probably over the, the coming months, uh, next six to 12 months, we'll We'll hear a number of other announcements from other manufacturers that have opted for Qualcomm. So it's turning into a real three-way battle in the driver assist space between Qualcomm, NVIDIA, and uh, uh, and Mobileye. Uh, and speaking of one of NVIDIA's customers um, for ADAS, uh, one of the first ones outside of China is actually um, uh, Volvo. Um, Volvo, uh, last week, uh, along with their division, uh, called Zensact, which does software and Luminar, uh, the LiDAR manufacturer, um, announced that, uh, when the replacement for the current generation XC90 launches later this year, uh, it will, um, it will eventually have a capability of something that Volvo is calling ride pilot. Uh, currently most Volvo vehicles offer a feature called pilot assist which is uh, a lane centering system, but it's a hands-on 
system. So you, you can't go hands-free, but it helps. It combines adaptive cruise control and lane centering. Um, and the, the next generation system is shifting to uh, using a compute platform with two of NVIDIA's Orin chips. Um, and it's, it's an EV um, that is going to replace the XC90. And there's also going to be a, the Polestar 3, which is using the same platform, which will probably have the same capabilities. Um, and uh, when they launch the vehicle, it's going to have a hands-free highway driving assist similar to GM's Super Cruise and Ford's Blue Cruise. Um, but it will be one of the first uh, to utilize um, LiDAR as part of that system. Uh, they are equipping all of those vehicles with uh, Luminar's Iris LiDAR, as standard equipment. Uh, and over time, they will gradually increase the capabilities as they do their testing and hit their safety milestones. Safety has always been a big thing for Volvo. Um, and they're going to start testing. They've been testing in Sweden for some time now. Um, uh, with a automated highway driving system. Uh, and they're going to start testing in California this year. And they expect California to be their first um, production uh, location or first, first place where they launch uh, the, their ride pilot system commercially. Um, and what ride pilot will be is what's known as a uh, um, eyes off brain on system. Uh, so, the driver, unlike Super Cruise or Blue Cruise uh, or any of the other level two systems out there today, the driver won't have to supervise the system constantly. Uh, they can read a book or text or watch a video. They won't be able to climb in the back and take a nap, um, but uh, they they can they can they don't have to watch the road. And the system will eventually is expected to be capable of doing all the entire highway driving task um, fully automated. Um, with the driver remaining in the driver's seat and ready to take over when, uh, when the vehicle leaves the highway or encounters some other situation that it can't handle. Um, and this is a system that's planned to be able to operate at full highway speeds, unlike the, um, the uh, Mercedes-Benz drive pilot system that launched uh, recently in Germany on the new S-Class and EQS, which is limited to 37 miles per hour. Uh, and this is the reason why they're planning to launch in California. Uh, California doesn't have any specific regulations around what's allowed for automated driving uh, in terms of speeds. Um, in Europe, uh, they are using uh, a harmonized regulation developed uh, through UNECE um, for automated lane keeping systems. And that regulation for these so-called level three systems um, requires the systems to be geofenced so they can only operate on highways. Um, they have to have driver monitor systems. Uh, both of those things are true for the Volvo system, um, but they are limited to 60 kilometers per hour or, 80, or 37 miles per hour. Uh, and that's something Volvo wanted to make it available at, at all speeds, uh, which is why they're going to launch it in California first. And then as other regions allow this type of system, they will they plan to expand its availability. Uh, so that's uh, that's Volvo's Ride Pilot uh, platform with uh, Luminar LiDAR on it. Uh, and then there's a, a few other LiDAR companies that made announcements last week, like Innoviz launching its 360-degree Innoviz 360 LiDAR. Um, let's see. Um, Ibeo Next, uh, or Ibeo, um, which is partly owned by ZF, uh, is going to be launching their Ibeo Next flash LiDAR 
later this year uh, in China on a couple of models from Great Wall and also with VinFast, uh, the Vietnamese EV manufacturer. Uh, and uh, Quantergy uh, has finally cl claims to have finally figured out how to do their optical phased array LIDAR, solid state LIDAR, uh, for automotive applications with a range of 200 meters. Uh, so those were some of the highlights from CES last week. Hey, Sam, so from looking at all these LIDAR and chip announcements, how, how would you say is industry kind of progressing more quickly than you thought or more slowly compared on to where it was, let's say, one year ago? Um, I think one of the things we're seeing, uh, particularly on the chip side, I think, you know, the, the LIDAR timing is about what I've expected, what we've, what we've forecast uh, over the last several years in terms of adoption rates. But the thing that we're seeing happening faster is the shift to these higher performance chipsets uh, for vehicles. And this is partly because of the uh, problems we've had with chip supplies over the last year in particular uh, with uh, the shortages that have caused massive reductions in vehicle production uh, because they can't simply can't get enough chips. Um, vehicles have traditionally tended to use older generation silicon, uh, which is more robust, uh, well proven out, um, and generally, manufacturers um, have used only as much computing power as they needed in the vehicle. They generally didn't leave, put in, build in much extra headroom for performance um, because there wasn't the ability in most cases to really update and add new features to vehicles. Um, but what we're seeing uh, through the chip shortage is those same older generation chips are the ones that are the most likely to be in short supply. Uh, because they're, they're built on older technologies, uh, larger node sizes. So you don't get as many individual chips for every silicon wafer. Uh, and that's where we're seeing the, a lot of the shortage. So what we're, what's happening is automakers are accelerating their plans to shift to next generation electronic architectures in the vehicles that are going from these distributed, you know, small, low performance electronic control units scattered all over the vehicle where you've got in some cases upwards of a hundred computers around the vehicle and consolidating that down to mostly a few larger, higher performance computers um, using higher performance chipsets like the NVIDIA Orin, Snapdragon Ride, uh, Mobilize IQ Ultra and, and, and some others um, and trying to bring forward those plans uh, and in turn, along with that, you know, they're having to make some substantial changes to their software architecture to support that. Uh, so that's, that's the thing that, that is changing um, so that they can, they can guarantee a supply of the chips that they need. Hmm. Anything else? No, I think, yeah, that's an interesting um, uh piece of in info from uh, CES. Um, and uh, yeah, it's interesting also that the, uh, the forthcoming XC90 will be, will be fitted with uh, LiDAR as standard. Um, do, do, are you aware if there's going to be any price hikes on the, uh, the, the, the retail price for, for, for that vehicle? Yeah, we, it's, we don't know yet. Um, we, we won't know that till sometime this fall, probably when they actually unveil the vehicle. Um, they showed last year, they revealed a concept called the concept recharge, which is a preview of the design of the XC90 replacement. Um, in addition to replacing the vehicle, uh, they are apparently 
uh, also going to drop their, their current uh, alphanumeric naming convention and, and adopt some actual names for their vehicles. So we don't know what it's going to be called. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the that vehicle um, will you know be similar in size to the current one, but it'll be a full battery electric, uh, no more internal combustion, as Volvo makes that transition to being all electric by mid-decade. Um, and we don't have any other details yet at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there will be a price hike, but it'll be difficult to, to figure out you know, how they apportion it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, if that's all we've got for this week, uh, I'll wrap it up and uh, we'll talk to everybody in two weeks' time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks Sounds good. See you then. <laughs>